Hello, it's Martin Henry here, and today I'm going to be talking to Tim Noonan, who is the Director of Campaigns and Communications at ITUC. Hi, Tim. Hi, Martin. Um, you spoke to our executive board last week about the history of matters which relate to the future of work and gave us quite an interesting context about the way things have got us to this point. Could you start by talking us through that a little bit? Well, I've, it felt a bit heroic, actually, as a, somebody who trained originally in science to come into a room full of educators and, and give them a history lesson. But actually, we are at a moment of history. Um, this year is the 100th anniversary of the International Labour Organisation. Uh, there will be a very big international conference, the, the annual conference of the ILO in June of this year. There will be lots of heads of government, heads of state. The regular business of the ILO will go on. Uh, there will be, uh, we hope, the adoption of a very strong uh, international convention on uh, gender-based violence, uh, violence and harassment in the world of work. But there's a big overlay this year, and that is uh, the what we expect to be the adoption of a centenary declaration. And that declaration should be about the future of work. Now, the history lesson goes a bit like this. In, the ILO was created in 1919, uh, coming out of the Treaty of Versailles, and somebody said to me once, oh, you should read the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, you'll learn something from it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know. So I dug it up, um, and it's actually quite a remarkable, the, the parts that relate to the, uh, the foundation of the International Labour Organisation are quite remarkable, people were talking about. But what was unique in history about the, the, that process was that it led to the first social contract, the contract between governments, business and labour, unions, about how the economy should work. And the reason behind, the reasoning behind the adoption uh, of the Versailles Treaty was that the world decided that we could never go through another world war, that the, that the incredible destruction that took place uh, in, and, the, and the millions of lives that were lost was something that could never be repeated. And the best way to ensure that it was never repeated would be to have the right social conditions through a social contract uh, that gave those basic rights, the right to organise, uh, the right to have a say over your own future as a worker. Fairly rapidly after 1919, those lofty principles began to be undermined and that was a big factor in creating the conditions which led to the Second World War. And it was when the end of the Second World War was possibly in sight in, in 1944 that wise heads got together again and drew up the Declaration of Philadelphia, which was the second iteration of the social contract. And that too is a document that's well worth reading. It really went through the, the notions that labour is not a commodity. It set the ground for uh, ensuring uh, social uh, and economic justice. 20, 30 years later, we began to see the advent of corporate globalisation, and, and we know the philosophies that were behind that. And since then, uh, over the intervening years, we've seen a steady erosion of that social contract. So this year, we have the opportunity to 
as the ILO in, in, it, in the report of its global commission says, to reinvigorate, to revitalise the social contract. We prefer to talk about a new social contract, one that puts the ILO in the centre of global governance and that provides the basis for working people to have a say in their own future at a time when the insecurity uh, and the despair of many people arising out of uh, the enormous levels of inequality that exist today are posing fundamental threats to democracy and to faith uh, and, and trust in institutions. With now an overlay of technological change at an almost asymptotic rate, uh, which requires dialogue, it requires a social contract to, management, to manage it. Otherwise, millions upon millions upon millions of people will be even further behind than they are today. It's interesting what you talk about, that if we think about historical moments and historical um, shifting points, many would say that we're at a similar moment today. And when we look at the actors around the world stage, there are many who seem more interested in an isolationist approach. And when we look at ILO and OECD and the other social partners that go across nations, there is a definite movement towards us talking about a transnational approach and others talking about an individualistic approach. Do you want to just give us your thoughts on that? Well, a retreat into, into tribe, a retreat into nationalism, and the emergence of uh, autocratic uh, political leaders, we've seen that before in world history, and, and the result of that has not been pretty. So we do believe that we're, on, we're at a very historical moment now. Uh, in, we know that, for example, with, uh, with uh, climate change, the only solutions which are going to work are ones that cross borders. You simply, no country, no city, no region, no family, no individual can solve these problems by themselves. Uh, in, in the context of the world of work, it's a pretty clear choice. Uh, if you have a union, if you have collective bargaining rights, and you, and you have the opportunity and the possibility to influence not only your working life, but the life of your society, your economy, your community, and indeed your own leisure time, uh, then um, you have a possibility, you have a chance. Uh, if you don't have a union, it's you against the world. The OECD have been quite interesting on this because their focus on the future of work has been inevitably leaning towards digitalization, but they have not been entering into the moral panic that we've seen from some organizations. And they've been talking in terms of 15% turnover of jobs as opposed to the 50% that we hear coming out of many US commentators. If we look at that balance, to what extent do we really feel that jobs are going to change wholesale? Or is there going to be a, a, a slow transition as we come to terms with technology and respond to the things that technology is bringing to us? We think it's probably going to be quite asymmetrical. There will be some areas where change will be very rapid and very profound. There will be others where it will be very gradual. And let's not forget that some 46% of households in the world are not connected to the internet. So change for them, what does that look like? Uh, it looks like being locked out of the digital promised land of the future. So we, we don't ascribe figures. What we do know is that there will be jobs that disappear. There will be new jobs that we maybe even haven't 
uh, contemplated yet as, as, as something that could become a job. Uh, but there will be very big changes in the content of existing jobs. And that's one of the reasons that the ILO Global Commission uh, put such a strong emphasis on the notion of lifelong learning. And, and not only in that sort of catchphrase way that we've been hearing for so many years, they talk very practically about the need to finance lifelong learning, the need to have appropriate qualifications and systems, the need to pay teachers well. Uh, all these things are, are essential, but uh, unfortunately the levels of investment, uh, both in terms of public education budgets and also uh, internal spending on uh, training uh, in both the private and public sectors is well below what's required. And at the current levels of expenditure, we don't see how the world is going to be able to keep up with the, um, the drivers of, uh, and, and particularly the very big companies that are driving technological change uh, in, in, in such a rapid and profound way. There's another interesting thing which has come up from both OECD and ILO in that both have been much more positive about collective agreements in the recent past and there's certainly been comments made at meetings I've been at where that is seen as a positive way of ensuring that companies are not only productive but also socially responsible to the workers within them. Do you want to just comment on that for a sec? Well, as a former biochemist, I can say that um, collective bargaining is in the DNA of the International Labour Organization. That's not always been in the, the case in relation to other institutions. It's kind of been there on the OEC agenda. Um, but we, we think that now the OECD is doing more than poking its head through the door on collective bargaining, and we're beginning to see it move to a much more prominent place. We wish we could say the same about the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Uh, some of their research work uh, is very good, uh, but when it comes to country-level uh, prescriptions, uh, particularly from the IMF, then uh, collective bargaining is somehow seen as some kind of hindrance to uh, the efficient performance of markets or, or whatever the particular sort of monetarist philosophy uh, playbook says, uh, regardless of what the evidence shows. So, um, again, it, it, it's a binary situation. Uh, you can have the protection of a union and the engagement through collective bargaining, or it can be you against the world. Uh, and we're beginning to see some signs that political leaders are, are waking up to that. Um, the horse is bolting, um, but the gate is still open, and we think we can get the horse back into uh, the right place uh, and make sure that the fundamental human right of collective bargaining, it's a fundamental right, uh, is, is, is there for everybody. If we take this on a little way and we start to think about the new things that have arrived in the world economy, and I'm talking particularly about platforms and platform capitalism, there's been quite a good critique written by Srinek and he's been very clear that the way in which platforms are operating are transnational in nature but unregulated and uncontrolled and there's news come out today on Facebook in England and the move to bring new regulations in. Many countries are going through the same conundrum. Um, how can we ensure that these transnational actors who are not following the rules in terms of global labour are brought into the fold in, in the way that they respond to their workers? Well, um, governments need to do this together and they need to do it fast. I mean, we've been hearing talk of this now for years. 
um, and what we haven't really seen is any effective action. So uh, while th there's been an enormous concentration of, of power and wealth in a very small number of hands, um, competition regulators haven't really touched that issue. Uh, if you're a freelance journalist, the competition regulator may say, oh, you can't bargain for a floor price because with, with your colleagues for the market because uh, that would be a violation of competition law. But at the other end, I mean, we all know the, 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 the numbers, massive accumulation of wealth and power, uh, not only in an economic sense, but in the sense of, uh, uh, of, of the, the future of whole countries, uh, elections being corrupted, um, vile terrorist acts being spread, uh, and uh, social media companies saying, oh, we can't do anything about that. Um, that's simply not true. The technology exists and the people exist. But the people need to be employed, they need to be paid well, you need proper content moderators, large numbers of them, uh, who have all the right support systems and mechanisms. But fundamentally, it's a, it's a question of regulation. Uh, it's a matter of choice. What we do know is that these are, these are huge transnational enterprises. Um, it's, we're not only talking about social media here, we're talking about large companies in the, the retail sector, for example. Um, or particularly one very large company in the retail sector, uh, and, and they're getting away with unconscionable acts. No single government can deal with that by themselves. One, one part of the solution to that is to uh, establish uh, a floor of rights for workers who work for platform businesses. That's one of the recommendations from the ILO Global Commission report, and it says the ILO should be active in that regulatory space. We see that as part of a much bigger package of change that needs to happen, including uh, the, the correct deployment of competition law to break up monopolies. Uh, but that demand coming out of the, the Global Commission is part of a particular um, policy recommendation from the Commission which says that, uh, as, as we say it, the new uh, social contract should be underpinned by what they've termed, the Commission has termed, universal labour guarantee. And that brings all the fundamental rights of uh, the ILO standards, the right to organise, freedom, uh, freedom of association, collective bargaining, protection from discrimination, no child labour, no forced labour. Uh, the concept also elevates uh, occupational health and safety regulation to that very top level, for, obviously, uh, for obvious reasons. It also sets out uh, the um, requirement that governments should ensure that people have a living wage. We have, uh, what, 300 million people working in poverty today in the world. And it also says that there should be a maximum limit on working hours. So it's that universal labour guarantee underpinning the new social contract, uh, accompanied by regulation into um, the international operations of those uh, platform businesses, which are key to the future. Well, that ILO Commission report was music to our ears because it constructed a whole lot of arguments around the importance of a human capabilities agenda, which we completely support. And our TVET report, and we have another one coming out this year uh, around July, which talks about the same thing, that without productive capabilities being developed in people throughout their working lives, we have only a utilitarian narrow angle on what it is someone can do. And if you take an economy like Singapore that is investing a whole lot of money in enabling people to change and move work 
from one particular industry to another. There is suggestion there that we have to have a global compact around how we can develop capabilities rather than utilitarian outcomes. Um, a few comments on that, if you can, Tim. Well, we're in deep conversation with our colleagues in Singapore. It's one of the places where government seems to be across this in a much more joined up way than, than a lot of other countries. So, as we know, uh, people's competencies, their abilities are central to all of this. Uh, and w we, let me say from the ITUC's point of view that in our global trade union ecosystem, we, we are lucky to have the Education International and the work that it's doing on this, uh, this whole sphere and all of the other work that it does but in my domain, particularly in this sphere, because without it, uh, we would be left um, uh, very poorly armed for what's going to be a significant fight in the future. It leads me to Orwell in 1984 that the suggestion of a dystopic future is just as strong as any utopic influences that we see in the future of work. We need to keep working together in solidarity in order to ensure that we have a future that is bright and rosy for all workers. And just to take the turn to a more sporting metaphor, I believe you're an Australian rules fan, Tim. If we can understand the rules of a game like Australian rules, surely we can understand the rules of work. Well, one thing I can tell you is that the players in Australian rules football, as in many other sports, have collective bargaining rights and that's one of the reasons it's one of the greatest sports in the world. What a great note to end on. Thanks for coming, Tim. Thank you, Martin. To get the latest global education news and advocacy, subscribe to Ed Voices on your favourite podcast app or anytime on SoundCloud. And as always, tell a friend, spread the word and please give us a review on iTunes. <laughs>